to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway of the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, January 18, 2008. I'm Adrian Burke. Karen Deneen Wagner is the Robert L. Stubblefield Professor and Vice Chair in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. She's an internationally recognized expert in the pharmacological treatment for childhood mood and anxiety disorders. She spoke in New York at the 19th Annual Mental Health Symposium in October 2007. The public meeting was hosted by NARSAD, the leading mental health charity. It focused on some of the latest developments in mental health research, and the subject of Dr. Wagner's talk was Key Insights About Depression and Bipolar Disorder. Well, it's a pleasure to be here this morning. And what I'll be doing first is uh, talking with you about depression and some of the issues related to treatment of depression, uh, particularly antidepressants that you may have uh, read about some in the newspapers, and then moving on to um, bipolar disorder and what some of the issues are that we're facing with this particular disorder in children and adolescents. Uh, in terms of uh, financial disclosure, I receive funding um, for research from the National Institute of Mental Health, and I'm a consultant um, or on advisory boards to industry. And then um, in terms of depression, all of the medications that I'll be discussing in this presentation are off-label for the use of um, use in children and adolescents, with the exception of fluoxetine. So basically what that means is that in depression, we have only one FDA-approved medication, and that is fluoxetine. Well, this was a 12-year-old boy, and what he said during an evaluation is, I feel like I was never meant to be put on this earth. And that's quite a poignant statement for a 12-year-old who was in sixth grade. He was suffering from major depression and really felt that there was nothing for him in the world that was good anymore or that he wanted to be around, and somehow he just didn't belong. He certainly had some suicidal ideation, among other symptoms. Well, how do we diagnose depression in children and adolescents? We use the same diagnostic criteria that we use for adults. And so that is one of the disorders in particular where we've established what the diagnostic criteria are in even young children, same criteria as adults. Now, in terms of the mood state, sometimes children, teenagers who have depression are irritable, extremely irritable, above and beyond the irritability that you might see with your typical teenager. It's possible they won't show dysphoric mood, but it could be an irritable mood. They have diminished interest in activities. You'll find children who don't want to be in any after-school activities, who drop out of many things. They may even say, well, no one participates in activities. And, and that's you know, probably not the case. Most kids do participate in something. Weight changes, decreased appetite, sleep problems, a lot of difficulty falling asleep at night, declining school grades because of low concentration, fatigue, and then the feeling of worthlessness or guilt. I remember one seven-year-old boy who said that he didn't think, and actually he was actually convinced that no one would ever love him in his whole life. And for a seven-year-old to make that kind of statement, he was very, very depressed. 
And then you also have the issue of suicidality. And this is where it gets complicated, because as you've heard, there is concern about antidepressants and potential suicidality. I'm sure you've seen that a lot in the past couple of years. But the thing that is important to remember is that suicidality is a part of the illness of depression. And a question that's important is, how many children that are diagnosed with depression will attempt suicide or kill themselves? Is this really a serious disorder in children? And the answer to the latter is that it is a very serious disorder in children. And if you look at this, these are some longitudinal studies that have been done following up children and adolescents over maybe a 10 to 15 year period of time to see what happened to them with regard to suicidality. And what you can see is that in terms of attempts, about 20 to 25 percent of depressed children and adolescents will attempt suicide at some time after diagnosis. Now, these are children. Some received treatment, some didn't. In follow-up, people come in and out of treatment or sometimes have no treatment. And then what about those that actually kill themselves? The numbers are low for young children. But if you look at this, this was a follow-up study, one follow-up study of adolescents. And what they found is they started to look at these children at about age 16. They followed them into young adulthood. And at that time, 8% had killed themselves. That is a very high suicide rate. When you think about medical illnesses, we don't have very many medical illnesses in children or adolescents that have that kind of high mortality rate. So this is a very serious illness, one which requires quite a bit of treatment. How long does depression last in children and adolescents? The mean length of an episode of depression is over a year. And in a lot of times you see it's up to a year and a half. Now think about being a child, third grade. All of the things that you have to learn in third grade, from schoolwork, to how to get along with people, to family relationships. Imagine being depressed, sad, irritable, doing poorly in school, not having friends. How long can that go on before the child can't recover? To lose a whole school year is a very long period of time. Fortunately, children are resilient, perhaps more resilient than adults, but it is still a very long time to be depressed. How many recover? In studies that have been done, about 85% of children, at least over a couple of year period of time, will recover from their illness. Others, it takes longer. But if you notice, although the majority do recover from an episode of depression, look how high the recurrence is. 40 to 50% of children and adolescents will have another episode of depression. So a disorder that's chronic and serious. Well, if a child or a teenager has depression, are they likely to become a depressed adult? And we do, in the area of depression, have answers to that question. And this was one example of one study that looked at adolescents. They're about 14, the average age. Followed them up over eight years. 
And what they found was that more than half of them had another episode of depression, sometimes towards young adulthood. And importantly, 18%, nearly 20% of these teenagers continued to be depressed adults. So major depression is a disorder that we have enough evidence to say that it is very severe in children. It is associated with substantial problems, school functioning, family interactions, academic difficulties, that it is recurrent, and that it goes on into adulthood. Now, if that's the case, we really need to find effective treatments for this disorder. The hope is that if you can treat early, maybe you can change the course of the illness. Or at least you can relieve the suffering of the child who's nine years old and is depressed. So what are we doing in terms of our treatments? And where are we with our treatments? And this is where you've probably seen in a lot of newspapers and other places about the issue of medication treatments. There are therapies for um, depression, mostly in adolescents. There is very little data about the use of psychotherapies in depressed children. That still needs to be done. But what I wanted to focus on with you is are some of the controversies about the use of antidepressants in this young age group. Well, what do we have in terms of positive studies? If you hear someone use the word positive studies, it means that in whatever measure was selected before the study started to measure outcome, and that's usually an improvement on a rating scale related to depression. Does the child's symptoms improve over time with treatment? And is that better than placebo? Placebo is an inert substance, a pill given, no active medication. So the thinking is that the medication would be better than placebo if it is effective. How many of our antidepressants have shown that in children and adolescents? Very few. The ones that have shown it are fluoxetine, which is the medication that is approved for use in children and adolescents by the FDA. There was a study of citalopram, and for some people, if it's helpful to you, fluoxetine is Prozac and citalopram is Celexa. And then there was another medication, sertraline, which is Zoloft, that in two studies that were pooled prior to the results being known, that was the study design, it was positive. So the medication was more effective than placebo. So those are the medications where we have some evidence of the studies being positive. But what I wanted to show you is something that is plaguing our field, and it may be related to the design of the studies, which is why we're getting some of these negative results and why some of the other medications don't look effective in children and adolescents. Let me give you an example of this. This is a study that was negative. The medication was not different from placebo. And if you look at this particular graph, going down means how much 
better they got. And if a medication works, then starting over, let's find where this little circle is, starting over at zero, well, going down, it would show an improvement. Now, what do you notice about these lines? The dark line is the medication, and the dotted line is the placebo. Do you notice what they do? They track together, and they are both showing improvement. It's not as if the medication had no effect. Indeed, the medication showed improvement, but placebo showed improvement. But this is considered a negative study. If you were to take this and look at it and not think about some of the study issues, you might you'd say, well, it looks like that medication doesn't work. But indeed, there was improvement. And then look at this. I put this chart together to show you on the top the medications that are positive, the fluoxetine, the citalopram, the sertraline. And the measure here when you see a CGI less than or equal to two, that means how many people got much or much improved. And that's a pretty good thing. Did you take a medication and did you get much or much improved? Well, if you look at the medications that are positive, what do you say, anywhere between 50-60% response rate, about 50-60% of children and adolescents got better. Now let's go down to the negative ones. What are the response rates there? 50-60%? Well, you'd say, well, how can that be? How can these work, the positive studies, and the negative ones not? Thanks a lot. Yes, great. So here, these numbers are fairly similar. But what's the difference? You're comparing it to placebo. And in these studies, particularly the fluoxetine studies, look how low the placebo response rate is. 37% compared to 52 is a big difference. 35 to 61 or 60 is a big difference. Look at the negative studies, what happened. Look how high the placebo response rate is. 57 compared to 69 or 46 compared to 49 isn't a very big difference. So in the studies that where the medication appeared not to work, the placebo response rate was very, very high. And what we're struggling with in the field is what to do with this placebo response rate. When people talk about placebo and you think, well, they just get a pill and then the child goes home, that's not the design of these studies at all. They get a very thorough evaluation, often for a couple of hours. The children come in weekly in the beginning of the study. They might stay for a half an hour to an hour where someone talks to them, completes rating scales, find out what's going on in their life. And in addition, they get a pill, which is inactive, placebo. They don't know it is. But there's a lot of interventions. So it's looking like what we're doing is comparing in our studies, especially with young children that come in with their parents and spend a lot of time with us, that we're comparing medication to some active kind of treatment. We're not exactly sure what to call it because you can't do that in real outside of a research setting. You certainly cannot dispense placebo medication because that's not a true medication. But we've got to grapple with what to do so that we don't continue to design these studies where we know ahead of time if that placebo response rate is really high, we will then 
have a hard time finding medications that indeed are better than that. So I wanted to show you some of the problems that we're having. And, you know, maybe it's time to start. If we say fluoxetine is the best medication in terms of the study designs done so far, maybe we should compare the medications to fluoxetine and see if they are different or not. But where all of this has led to is a study that was done looking at adolescents saying, well, how about if we compare medications with therapy and see? Because we read a lot that therapy is a very effective modality for treating depression. It's always important to look at the age range and the type of uh, therapy. In this case, they were adolescents, so we don't have an answer for children at this point. But with adolescents, they were um, randomized to either fluoxetine or therapy, cognitive behavior therapy, or a combination of both, or placebo, to see which worked and was the most effective. And if you just look at much or very much improved, the findings were that adding fluoxetine and cognitive behavior therapy, about 71% in that group improved. If we look at fluoxetine alone, 61%. And both of these beat placebo, but the therapy didn't. There was no difference between placebo and the cognitive behavior therapy alone. So on the basis of this study, one could argue that combined treatment may be most effective and that next down, if you were to use these study, this study design, would be medication alone for those that have moderate to severe depression. Well, now, what about antidepressants and suicidality? What is it that's been going on that ha you've read about probably for the past three years and is still continuing to be a very, very um, timely and ongoing issue in this population? What is this all about? Well, just to refresh, uh, back in around 2003-2004, there was a review of studies of antidepressants, uh, these antidepressant trials that had been done in children and adolescents. Some of them had depression and some of them had anxiety disorders. They were all combined and then looked at to see, after the fact, was there any suicidality in any of the groups. And the findings where this was an analysis done by the FDA, where out of these approximately 4,400 children and adolescents, first, there were no suicides. So if anybody has been reading, maybe a few years ago, that reading a statement such that antidepressants cause suicides, if you look at the data here, there were no suicides. The word used is suicidality. To many people, suicidality implies suicide. But in this case, the suicidality meant a child thought about suicide. I wish I was dead. I wish I could kill myself. Um, life's worth not living, those types of statements. They said that at some point during the course of the clinical trial. Or they made an attempt. And if you look at the groups, there were 54 suicide attempts or ideation on medication and 24 on placebo. And again, the people, when this analysis was, were, was done, the studies had been done for years, and all that could be reviewed were what was in the casebooks. So if a child said, I wished I was dead, that was coded as suicidal ideation. The context will never know. You know, were they saying that? 
talking to their therapist and they didn't plan on doing it, who knows? You can't go back two or three years later and find a particular child and find the researcher. The, people, the FDA had to work with what they had available. So the findings were that there was 4% suicidality with antidepressant medication, again, no suicides, thinking or behavior, and 2% on placebo. What happened next is then there was a black box warning on the basis of that, a black box warning about suicidality with antidepressants. And it applied to all antidepressants, whether or not they've ever been studied in children. And that there should be close monitoring for children that are on antidepressants. I mean, we could really say there should be close monitoring for anybody at any age being prescribed medications. That makes good clinical sense. So what is the outcome of this? Black box warning goes on about 2000, around 2004. And now this is where you've been seeing probably more information. Has there been an effect of the black box warning? I mean, if indeed antidepressants were to be related to suicide, you would expect suicides to go down. If people prescribe less, you might think of those sorts of things. Um, or it could go in the other direction. And that's what we need to find over time. But let, let me show you a few of the things that have been coming out. The first thing is, what was the impact? These group of researchers looked at what was the impact of this black box warning on prescribing? And they looked from June to March 2005 time period before the black box and after. And what the finding was is that there was a significant decrease in antidepressant prescriptions for children and adolescents. And in the period here, February 2004 to July 2004, a decrease of, of about 4% per month. So less use of antidepressants. Now what's really interesting is who stopped prescribing the antidepressants. And what they found is that there was a shift, a shift from generalists uh, general practitioners, family practitioners, and pediatricians over here, to psychiatrists. So if you noticed, a lot of general practitioners were prescribing antidepressants before the black box. After the black box, they seemed to stop. And now it's only psychiatrists. And again, for people in the field, there are not a lot of child psychiatrists. And so if it's shifting to psychiatrists, then we, th there could be certainly more weights for treatment. Now, what to me is even more interesting is that there was so much press about the use of the SSRIs. Those are things like fluoxetine, um, sertraline, citalopram, escitalopram. People heard that. Even though the black box applies to any antidepressant available on the market, there was a market shift from the use of the SSRIs, the only types of medication for which we have any evidence of efficacy in children and adolescents, a switch to using tricyclic antidepressants increased. They haven't been used in children and adolescents for depression in probably 15 years. And to bupropion, which just has never been studied in children and adolescents. So that, I think, probably was an unintended consequence to start to use medications for which we don't have any evidence what, that they work. So that was one thing. Now, another and this one just recently got published a few months ago, is they looked again to see is there anything else, and here confirming once again, 
what something is actually quite interesting is that after the FDA advisory, the rates of diagnosing depression in children and adolescents dropped. Now, that's an interesting thing. We certainly wouldn't expect a black box warning to prevent children from getting depressed. I mean, that you couldn't even imagine such a thing. But something has happened such that a lot less children are being, are being diagnosed with depression. Those that are diagnosing it less appear to be pediatricians and primary care physicians. The amount of antidepressants being prescribed to children is three times less than what would be expected if it had continued the way it was prior to the advisory. And most worrisome, I think, is that there is no increase in alternative treatments. So although the medication prescription has dropped, it has not been substituted with therapy. And then it makes you start to really worry about a group of children who have depression who are either not being diagnosed or not being treated. Well, what is this done to the suicide um, rate. There's a lot of controversy with this, and I think it will need more time and more data over the years to see if there really has been an impact on the suicide rate. The preliminary information coming out, if you look at the period from 2003 to 2005, and remember around 2004 was the black box warning, is that there has been first uh, the numbers right now are a 22 percent decrease in SSRI prescriptions, antidepressant prescriptions for youth. And the trend, and again, this is preliminary, is that there has been a 14% increase in suicides in youth in the United States. What we need to see is if this trend continues, if the use of medication continues to drop and suicide goes up. The CDC has been monitoring this carefully. And look at something that's really interesting. From 1990 to 2003, there was a steady decline in the suicide rate in youth, 28% decline in that period of time. From 2003 to 2004, for the first time in over 10 years, an 8% increase in suicide rate in youth. Where is this occurring? Females, interestingly. Because when you think of suicide, suicides are actually more common in males in large part because they use lethal methods like guns hanging. We'll look at this. The rate, the biggest increase in rate is in females 10 to 14 and the most common means of killing themselves were hanging and suffocation. And that is worrisome because to be able to hang oneself you can do that with anything that you have at home, a belt, a tie, a rope. With weapons, we always tell parents of children who are depressed, make sure there are no guns available in the house. But this is really worrisome, a new means, a new something that hadn't been seen before for suicidality in adolescence. And lastly, on this issue of the suicidality, is, well, what's another way to look at it? And this is what happens with people if they get prescribed an antidepressant? Does their rate of suicidality go up? And 
This was just reported looking at antidepressants if a primary care physician prescribes them, if a psychiatrist does, or if you get therapy. Minus one is the amount of suicidality before treatment. You can see it's quite high. People come into treatment when they're really ill. Notice no matter what you get, suicidality goes down. Antidepressants, suicidality goes down. Antidepressants, suicidality goes down. Psychotherapy, suicidality goes down. So with all of this, this then, there has been some discussion of what to do and what the implications are about the black box warning. I mean, we always want to be conservative with this issue, if there's a chance of anything, to warn parents. But we have to make sure that the warnings don't frighten people from treatment in that depression in and of itself can be a lethal illness in children and that they need to be diagnosed and that they need treatment. So our treatments then, serious illness, we have to think about something to do about this placebo response rate. Maybe we need to compare one effective medication to another to see if there are other medications beyond one FDA-approved medication for treating this disorder in children, and that this issue of suicidality and antidepressants really needs a lot more uh, studies so that we don't continue to have what is a very concerning trend of decreased diagnosis in children and decreased treatment, which certainly will lead to more suffering in this age group and the possibility of more lethal events from an untreated illness. So that's where we are with um, depression. And what I wanted to do was to just switch over briefly in the theme of mood disorders to mention to you about some of the interesting and new things with bipolar illness. Now, this is something that has caught much of the public's attention. There have even been issues with bipolar disorder. I think there was recently 60 Minutes discussed bipolar disorder in children and adolescents. Um, when does it begin? Uh, I think when I was in training, I was told that bipolar disorder begins in the late 20s or early 30s. So if someone tells you that's when bipolar disorder begins, well, then if you saw a child, you wouldn't even think of bipolar disorder because they're too young. They're not in their late 30s, so they can't have it. So if you have that mindset, you'll never see it. But guess what's been happening? There are adults who have bipolar illness that are telling their psychiatrist it started when they were young and that it didn't start when they were 33 or 35, that it started much younger. Well, how much younger? This is a sample, a large sample of 480 adults that have bipolar illness. And they were asked, when did it begin? And in terms of childhood, less than 12, 14% said it began younger than age 12. And how many in adolescence? 36%. So if you look at that, that pretty much looks like half of these adults said their illness began in childhood or adolescence. And according to these adults, the earlier the age of their onset compared to those that had adult onset, they had more severe illness, more anxiety disorders, more recurrences, less periods of being well, and more likely to attempt suicide or be involved in violence of some form. So perhaps a more serious illness. But the trouble with these reports 
is that they're retrospective. It is people that are recalling back to childhood. We need to go now the other direction, childhood on up to adulthood, to start seeing what's happening with children and to follow them. Well, there was just a report that is bipolar disorder increasing in children. And what this was is that in the re if you look at per 100,000 population, in 1994 to 1995, there were only 25. The number was 25 per 100,000 of outpatient visits for children that were diagnosed with bipolar. In the year 2002 to 2003, the number went up to 1,003. That's still per 100,000, not very high, but it's a substantial increase. And so what we need to look at with this number, could it be that there's increased recognition of this disorder and that that's why the number is going up? But as with all childhood disorders, we have to make sure that we're appropriately diagnosing the disorder. How about inpatients? Been about a four or five-fold increase in the number of inpatient diagnoses of bipolar disorder from 96 to about 2004. So there seems to be more diagnoses of bipolar disorder. And how do we diagnose bipolar disorder? Well, this is where there is a lot of controversy. Is bipolar disorder in children and adolescents the same disorder that it is in adults? You know from what we just discussed about major depression, depression in children is the same as depression in adults and in adolescents. But is what we're seeing in young children the same thing as what it is with adults? There certainly are a group of children, and people, I'm giving you this as an example of one researcher saying, maybe there are different types of bipolar disorder. Maybe it's not just one kind of bipolar disorder. Maybe this very narrow type and a very broad type. And if we look at what we call a narrow type, this is what should be really being diagnosed as bipolar 1 illness in children. These are children that meet DSM-4 criteria, where they have episodes of illness where they are either extremely elevated in mood or extremely irritable in mood, and then they have associated symptoms, grandiosity, decreased need for sleep, busy, busy doing other things, getting involved in activities that would be considered reckless, young children running out into the street. We had one child with bipolar illness that decided to take a bike ride. He was seven years old with wearing only sneakers. He liked his sneakers um, at 2 o'clock in the morning down a busy street. Where was he going? He thought a ride would be fun. His parents did not think a ride would be fun, but he was rather manic at that particular period of time. Those kinds of things where that's impairing these children that just they can't get along with other children. They are very grandiose. They believe what they say is right. No one can convince them otherwise, not even teachers. Um, they think they can teach the class. Uh, they do all sorts of things with that grandiosity that you might see at this very young age. Those are children that have bipolar 1 illness. There are other children that have a lot of problems with their mood. There's a lot of chronicity with their mood. And this is what some people are talking about is maybe this, there's a chronically moody child that is very hard to manage, very difficult to get along with, um, irritable all the time. Is that really bipolar illness or is that just a very severe mood dysregulation? May need treatment, 
but may or may not be bipolar illness. So that's what we need to watch for. These numbers in terms of bipolar illness are increasing, and it would seem that they're increasing because of increased recognition. But what we must be careful of is the diagnosis. If they have bipolar one illness, they should meet criteria for bipolar one. They may have other mood states. And some of this, some are talking about the severe mood dysregulation. And there was a researcher trying to look at those that really met bipolar one, that had this narrow type. Are they any different from those that they're, they're just these moody children that are nearly impossible to manage? And interestingly, what they found is that those that really have bipolar one illness, 33% of their parents um, had bipolar illness. And if you look at those with these severe mood problems, only 3% did. So maybe there's a difference in the family history, and maybe there's a difference in the outcome in looking at children that have severe mood problems but don't meet the ups and downs of bipolar illness. Um, they were more likely to have depression when they got older. It doesn't mean it isn't serious, but it may just be a different type of disorder. So we need a lot more clarity on making the diagnosis of bipolar illness in young children, and we need to follow the course. And here is, as far as what we know, if someone were to say to you, does bipolar illness, if a seven-year-old child has bipolar illness, they've had periods of elevated mood or irritability, they've been energized, they've been talking very fast, they've been distractible, people can't really um, deal with them well in school or at home, they've had these mood episodes that may repeat a lot, but they have bipolar illness. Is that seven-year-old child, where they're like this all the time, going to become a 30-year-old adult who has cycles of mania and depression? Is that going to happen? That is a very important question. And the answer to that is that we don't know. We don't know. Why don't we know? Because there has not been, to date, a long-term follow-up study of these children that have been diagnosed at a young age. This is the longest study, and if you notice, it goes four years. So what we can say is that we know some information about the four-year course of this illness, and it is of concern that, well, I guess the good part is that over this four-year period of time, about 87, so maybe 90% of children recovered from their episode of illness. That's good. It takes a long time, but that's good. The worst part, though, is that of those that recovered, 64% of them had another episode of illness. So it's looking like it's a chronic illness, but we can't say. This is only four years. These children that were diagnosed in this particular sample were those that had very, very rigid and strict criteria for bipolar illness. They had to be manic. They had to have an elevated mood and be grandiose and have a lot of other symptoms in order to get in. So what we need to look at is, over time, those children that have mood problems, severe mood problems, that meet DSM-4 bipolar criteria and see what happens to them and compare those to those that just have a lot of mood problems but not fulfilling criteria and see if there's difference. 
We also have a sample of children that we're looking at that um, are being treated for bipolar illness at a very young age. In our group, there's four or five sites across the country doing this. We have children as young as seven, six or seven, six years old that are in this study, and we're looking to We're treating them to see which medication works best. And our hope over time, um, we're pursuing our grant funding for this. Our hope is that what we'd like to do is to see if treating early makes a difference in the course of the illness. If you treat a seven-year-old, will it change? Will the developmental trajectory change and will they get back on track? Or do you just treat a particular episode and it doesn't have an impact in the long term. Our hope is that early treatment will impact in the long term, but at this point, we, we, we don't know that yet. So I would say if, in comparing major depression to bipolar, we know a lot more about major depression in terms of diagnosing it, recognizing it, its course, and we need more effective treatments, or at least a better way to study those treatments in depression. What we need in bipolar illness is a much better understanding of the presentation, the clinical presentation of that disorder in very young children, four or five, six-year-olds, and we need to know whether that presentation becomes our typical up-and-down mania depression of an adult, and if so, how should we treat it effectively? find out about all that's happening at the intersection of science and culture, visit our website at scienceandthecity.org. 